Downloads of this show are available on Podomatic.com and the Podomatic mobile app. I'm trying to think. Hey kids, I'm Michelle Carlo, and this show is Fish Out of Agua on Radio Free Brooklyn. Today is Tuesday, September 5th, 2017. Labor Day has come and gone, and most people think summer is over. But not for us, kids. Oh, no, 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 no. There's still three weeks left, and that means three more summer songs you get to hear. Like this one, another from my well-spent youth.
And we're back with Fish Out of Agua on Radio Free Brooklyn. That was the Deadbeat Club from post-punk, new wave, all-around, favorite party band of all time. Well, for me, anyway, the B-52s. This, that song was from their Cosmic Thing album in 1989. And the B-52s, they have, they're still playing today, believe it or not. And they formed back in 1976, kids, in Athens, Georgia a city that produced quite a few musicians, some of whom you might recognize, like mm, R.E.M., Widespread Panic, Lyra Lynn, and Georgia also produced our guest artist this week. So there might be a little bit of a theme going on with the songs, like this one, handpicked by our guest artist for this episode.
That was Mississippi-born, Louisiana-raised Britney Spears and You Drive Me Crazy from her 1999 debut album, Baby One More Time. I'm honestly, personally, not a big fan of the Brit, but for someone who basically had a totally public, in my humble opinion, partially media-induced nervous breakdown, and managed to get through it and return to the stage... So even though I might think that she was kind of a brat when she first came out, but I got to admire the survival. Seriously, kids, you know, the life will eat you up and chew you out. And just because people got to... Anyway, life will (laughs) chew you up and throw you out. And on that note, here is my favorite part of the show. You might want to take notes for this one, kids. Oh my God, she's an amazing storyteller and theater producer and performer and blogger and writer. And anyway, why don't I just shut up and let her tell you. Welcome to Fish Out of Agua's Guest Artist of the Week. Woohoo! This is my favorite part of the show because I get to talk to one of my favorite art stars, storytellers, theater humans, musicians, or all three or four or five. And I'm sitting here today with one of my favorite performers. Yes, I know. Every week I say they're my favorite, but I can't help it because it's true. Everybody's my favorite. All you favorites that have not been on here still have a chance to be the favorite on. <laughs> so I'm sitting here with the illustrious, the accomplished, the beautiful, the witty, and the incandescent sparkling, Susan Kent. Wow. Thank you, Michelle. You're welcome. It's so awesome to be here. We've been trying to make this happen for a while. We've been trying to make this happen since season one. And like three things just keep kept getting busy and busy because we're just like busy. We have a lot going on. I know. Performing I know. and writing and producing and just trying to doing and doing and doing. And trying to fit an hour just to like just talk. Sometimes it's just like it's, it's like when people used to say, Let's have lunch. Yeah. Like people used to actually have eat lunch. Like they would go out and go to a place and order lunch and have it like served and mm-hmm. eat the lunch and that like that Who now? has that kind of time? That's like no. four hours. I, I, I don't know. Have that. Transit and yeah. Oh, people used to drink during lunch too. Oh, I remember when I got my, I when do. I had my first um, job out of out of art school. I was working for a, this big advertising agency, and people well, people could still smoke in the offices because it was you know still the eighties. Yeah. And people would go out and drink with lunch. I mean, that whole thing with the three martini lunch. Right. Yeah, but I think they were doing like three hits of blow at lunch. But you know, You'd have to that's because another story. how do you not go home and or go back to the office and take a nap? I don't know. I don't know. I didn't do either. I was too afraid. I would be done. Yeah. I'd yeah. Totally yeah. Done. Now I would be not be afraid. Isn't that something? Yeah. It's like when, when like... Well, growing up. Yeah. Yeah. I guess. But like when you're growing up and you're like, yeah, I could do it. But then when you're a kid, like, yeah, I'm afraid. Yeah. Well, because you don't want to get in trouble and you don't have as right. much confidence or... Yeah, you don't have feel experience. In your place yet. Right. Like yeah. now I could have like three drinks and like I can walk fine and go home and whatever, you know. Well, I also don't drink them the way that I used to where right. I just be pound them cuz I wanted to get drunk. Right. Right. And then you can and then you get up and you go splat. Right. That. Ah. <laughs> cute. It's real cute. That but look. speaking of drinking and eating, um that's kind of how we met, isn't it? 
right? We the, were figuring it out before, right, right before we went, we went live. Yeah, there was a storytelling show, Eat My Heart Out. Yes, Eat My Heart Out Supper Club by Eugene Ashton Gonzalez and this guy named Luke something or other. Not Luke Perry, Luke. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was he actually not Luke was kind of, but he was kind of cute. He was a cute Luke, and they're they're out in California now, the both of them. Mm -hmm. But he used to do a storytelling show at different venues, mostly this one venue in in Dumbo, in Dumbo. and yeah. they would have five storytellers and they would curate and cook a meal around everyone's story. Right, yeah, each course was based on the story. I remember there was some weird donut for somebody and it was fish flavored. Yeah. Do you remember that weird yeah. salmon donut? It was weird. It was very upsetting. And I had mofongo. Oh, well, of course. I had, I had of course, of course, of course. I was, yeah. And I think, I believe that um, the late Taylor Negron was on that show. Mm -hmm. uh, Blaze Ellison Kearsley, yep. who used to do the How I Learned series was on the show. Yeah, she's one of my favorites. Yeah, she's amazing. Yeah, and she's a brilliant story. I missed that show. I hope it comes back soon. Yeah, and it's always really fun. Also, um, the Story Collider lady, Erin Barker. Yeah. I think that she got proposed to that night. That's crazy. I don't remember that. I was not storytelling that night. I was bartending because they had put out some post, you know. Yeah. Anybody want to bartend yeah. a storytelling show? Was, was it at Winkle's Loft? Yeah. Yeah. Had that crazy loft. Yeah, yeah. Loft. Yeah. That's an amazing space. Which is also really cool, the secret. Yeah. You only know Speak if you easy. know. Speakeasy. Only know if you know. That's right. Yeah, so that's how we met. Yeah. Were you, were you doing years. storytelling then? That's years ago. I had just started doing storytelling. That's probably like at least five, five, years five ago. at least five years ago. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. I started storytelling with Victoria Scroggins doing Tell It Brooklyn. Oh my gosh! She started that show with another friend, and for their first show, Victoria was just looking for people to do stories. She knew that I was a writer, and um, so she started badgering me. She's like, "Hey, I've got the storytelling show. You need to come do it." And I was like, "No, what's wrong with you? I'm not going to do a story on." stage in front of people and she's like well you have to we need people and she just badgered the shit out of me until I finally just relented and was like fine I'll do it and then I get to the show and I'm terrified and I almost canceled on her and then finally get on stage and three words in I was like <gasps> I'm at home this oh feels like my home god to me. it was the most magical moment where I just thought oh oh this is what I'm supposed to be doing and then you keep chasing it, so you want to get that same high from the first time yeah, you went on stage. Like, yeah. it's, it's better like than crack. opiates. Better, yeah. than, better than opiates, better than heroin, better than crack. Because this storytelling, the more you do it, the more you live. Yeah, and it's so amazing because I have stories, and everybody just shuts up and listens. I know. It's the best. Yeah, right? You have, yeah. you have those, like, 5 or 10 or 12 minutes on the stage, and people are just like... <laughs> Yeah. On you. Yeah, and you get to get it out, and you get to craft it for them. And I love performing with people because you can interact and you can see their faces. Like, I don't like a venue where you can't see yeah. beyond the first row. Yeah. yeah. I want to be able to look at people and get their reactions and, like, have a conversation rather than doing a performance. So how did you get from the place where you were you were bartending at a storytelling show to being in a storytelling show but before that what is what is your background were you were you a writer were you a, an actor as a, as a child and young teenager yeah i started writing when i was about 10 my mom got me my first diary and it just was Tell my... people where you were born and stuff. So Oh, know. my mom, I was born in Florida, but I grew up in South Georgia. So I was in a town of 9,000 people. 
the Deep South people, deep. for those, some, we have some listeners that are not from the United States, so the Deep South of the United yeah, States. the buckle of the Bible Belt. Yeah, the I Confederate was, flag states. I thought there were some places that they, they took it down. They're, well, South Carolina, for sure. Yeah. You know, they took it off the state capitol. Right, right, right. But they're not taking it off of people's houses. Oh, that's true. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Or their trucks. Right, or, right, right. You know, so tractors. It's, it's, so it's officially not flown, but people it's, do it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I think that once they took the flag off the state capitals, people started putting more out mm. in defense. Yeah. Right. I, I could see that. I could see somebody that never really cared much before. I was like, why do y'all mean you're telling me I can't yeah. fly my stars and bars or whatever? I mean, Walmart sold out real quick. Oh, my God. <laughs> Walmart, what doesn't Walmart sell? People, I mean, they probably right. do. That, if they can get away with it, I'm sure. Oh my God, did you hear that they that they found, I think this is in Texas though, um, there was a tractor trailer parked in front of a Walmart and they were doing human trafficking. They were, they were refugees from, yeah, from Central America in this truck and somebody like was able to get out and, and begged for water because they were all dying of heat. Oh my goodness. Yes, yeah, yeah. That's crazy. Crazy. Yeah, and and I was like, why were they at Walmart? And I, I, I my my mind goes like cray. I start going to like you know like Twin Peaks, uh, X Files, you know. Yeah, realms. but Walmart. But is, like, what, does Walmart sell people? No, but they have those <laughs> huge parking lots where truckers stop and spend the night all the time. Oh, that always okay. happens. So that's not unusual for trucks to be parked. Okay, no, not See, at all. I, I'm a city kid, so we don't have Walmart in New York. We have no WalMarts in New York as of uh, 2017. I so, worked at. I, was also fired by Walmart. Wow, <laughs> yeah. that's cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've spent a lot of time in a Walmart mm. shopping, and yeah. Oh, South so, so you grew up in South Georgia. You grew up in South Georgia. Um, was a writer as a little kid, but you know, like journals and stuff. But it was still memoir-based stuff, right? Like it's writing about my life, like and a diary, my story. Yeah, yeah like dear diary, blah blah blah. Mm-hmm. I like this person. Dear diary, blah blah blah. Yeah. I want this lipstick. Dear diary, I listen to the Cure. Yeah, dear diary, please. I hope one day to have big boobs. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and then I also was in all the musicals, all the plays. I did a lot of acting and stuff. I was a dancer. Yeah? Yeah. Oh, yeah, you're tall, so I could yeah. totally see yeah. modern dance. Ba- ballet, tap, and jazz. Ooh. There was no modern jazz in hands. my Fitzgerald, Georgia. Yeah. <laughs> What's the name of the town? Fitzgerald. Fitzgerald, okay. Fitzgerald, yeah. It was a... Little community that was founded by Union soldiers after the Civil War. Really? Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Yeah, they uh, wanted a retirement community, and so they just carved out a mile square swath out of the pine forest, created a little town. It's on a grid. All the streets are named after Confederate and Union soldiers and battleships. And wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Were they, was it considered a carpetbagger town back in the 1800s? Uh, not so much. It was really about Union soldiers who didn't want to go back up north for the harsh winters. Oh. And they decided, well, we're here, so let's just start Stay? a town. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah, it's a cool little place. Well, I mean, it's interesting. Okay. <laughs> it's got quite a history. Yeah. yeah. I guess there were, there were cool things about it, and it's like anywhere else. There were cool things about it, and they're not cool things about it. Yeah. I mean, I guess like any small town, it's fine until you're about 14. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah, and it's nice. Like, yeah, you once know. catching frogs in, in, in the lake doesn't have its allure anymore. Yeah, I spent a lot of time in the, the woods. Once and the boobs start growing. Once they started coming in, then I had other things I wanted to do. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Uh, that's universal, Susan. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I couldn't wait to get out of there. And eventually made it, you know. I went to college in a little town very close by, but then 
went to Florida State, and then I studied abroad and eventually made it to New York. Oh, wow. Where'd you go abroad? To Italy. Really? Yeah, I lived in Florence for a year. Oh, my God. Yeah. How awesome was, was that? Amazing. Wow. Life-changing. Wow. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. I'm not the same person I was. Oh, I'm sure. Right before. I I'm totally there. sure. Yeah. So what, what are, like, the two best things that you remember that happened? Um, I bought stamps. You bought stamps? I bought stamps. It was the proudest moment of my life. I went in. I asked for them in Italian. I got the exact stamps that I wanted. It was a perfectly beautiful transaction, and I felt so powerful because I had lived in a different country, and I was there living and thriving, and I could go out and take care of myself, and it just felt huge to me. Wow, so you were, you were empowered by that. Yeah, and can it's a you simple still, thing. Did you become fluent in Italian? Pretty fluent. I could speak, you know, like I couldn't have like deep conversations about science or anything, but... Day to day stuff. I was pretty good, and I still I go back. You can still speak it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Whenever I go back, it just all comes flooding Ah. back. Yeah. Va bene, sta bene, molto bene. (laughs) Molto bene, si, certo. Yeah, I grew up. I grew up in an Italian American neighborhood in the Bronx, but that's yeah, that's how like where I am with Spanish. Like I can't talk about deep, um, like criticism or science and stuff, yeah. but I, I I can, like, have a bar conversation. Yeah, basically. I don't have the 50-cent words yet. But yeah, no, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I can know. order food. Yes, I can find the bathroom, and, and and you know if someone's talking about you and you need to leave right now. And what were you, like, 22 when you were living there? Uh, I was 25. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, I waited a little bit before I went to college, and then and had a year off in the middle, yeah. That's probably better. You probably stuck with it more than, you know, sometimes they say that. You know the story about the baby that I gave up for adoption. It's the first story I ever told as a storyteller, yes. and I, you know, it's been out on podcasts and stuff. And um, so that was your year off. That was my year off yeah. in between. Yeah. And then once I gave the baby up for adoption, my mom said, "Well, I guess you're starting college right now." Well, that was good. Yeah, it was that fantastic. was good because it didn't give you any time to ruminate on anything else. No, I just went. straight You just in. had to go straight in a month later. Yeah. yeah, like Susan before and Susan after. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was the best thing. Yeah. Because it got me moving, and it got me that one little baby step out of South Georgia. Yeah. So um, get it, becoming pregnant as a teenager and giving up a baby for adoption, was that usually what happened if, some, if a girl got um, pregnant in your town? No, usually they would get married. Because a lot of my friends got pregnant right after high school. Wow. Right around graduation. There were a couple of girls who were pregnant right before and that then, happened in the Bronx, too. Yeah, and then several of them. And then they just all got married, and they're all divorced now. And, and they were all you know, still in the town or you, close most by? Most people, yeah. There weren't a lot of us who got out. And even kids who went to college farther away than I did ended up coming back. And they're living in this same world that I thought we were all trying to get out of. And I always felt like we were all in it together. Like, okay, we're just making it through here until we can move on. And turns out it was like me and two other people. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. Like, you know, so many people come to New York because it's the place, it's the only place that they feel that they could pursue their dream for whatever reason. They don't fit in their small town or, or they're gay or they're weird or they're nerdy or they're a goth or whatever. But like what happens if you're from New York? Yeah. Like where, where you know, where, where, how do you run away from home? You go from the Bronx well, yeah, to Brooklyn? I guess. I don't know. You know? But I know so many people when I was growing up, they, didn't, they moved upstate. 
That's how they got out. They couldn't wait to get out of the Bronx. And for them, getting out was going upstate. For me, getting out was going to art school in Manhattan and mm -hmm. becoming an artist. So it's a relatively similar thing right? But with, with, with you and me. Like, the friends, they left, and they didn't really get out. Mm -hmm. And, like, my friends just, like, left New York. And, it's, and I'm like, why are you leaving New York for? It's like, I hate it here. It's like, why? Yeah. 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 It's weird, right? It is. I'm yeah. glad that I'm the one that wanted out, though. Yeah, and I'm glad I'm the one that stayed. Yeah. High five. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So how old were you when you came, when you came to New York? Uh, I was 27. This month is 19 years. Wow. Yeah. Cheers. Clink. Thank you. Cheers. Clink, clink, ching, ching. Wow. And, and uh, what, what, yeah. did, what, what were you starting to do right away? Were you, did you start writing? Were you working? Were you bartending? Oh, were you acting? Is, were you catering? It was ridiculous. I were you had, rollerblading? <laughs> right? I had just, it, well, it was the era of rollerblading. Um, I had just gotten back from studying abroad in Italy, and some of my friends who I had met there were living in New York, and I went back to Florida. And one day, one of them said, you know, I need a roommate in Brooklyn. You should just move up. And she was joking, and I said, well, okay. And she's like, really? I'm like, yeah. And I was in grad school. I was teaching at Florida State. I had an apartment. I quit my job. I dropped out of grad school. I sublet my apartment, and I packed up a CRX. And two weeks later, I drove to Brooklyn. Wait, you were teaching? You were a professor? Uh, no, I was in grad school, oh, okay. so I was teaching. Like an adjunct or yeah, whatever you call it? Yeah, the little well, assistant So you were an educator. Yeah. And what was your subject? English. Oh. Yeah, I taught composition and... All the first year classes, you know, and um, I had also just gotten in trouble with the administration because we, some friends of mine and I in the department decided to start a teachers union because we weren't getting paid anything and we were not only taking a full load of classes, we were teaching a full load of classes. And as soon as the three of us signed papers that went to the dean, I started getting the crappy classes. I couldn't sign up for the classes I wanted and, you know, it was just this little subtle blacklisting that happened so the timing was just perfect you know when my friend was like hey move to Brooklyn I was like yes there's the answer I'm out of here so what what were you how did you express yourself artistically when you when you first got here or were you not even thinking about that you were just thinking about surviving just surviving yeah and getting adjusted to the culture shock and living in Williamsburg oh. in 1998 Williamsburg. Whoa, talk a little bit about that. Williamsburg at the turn of the century. It for was. For those people who only think it's like the McCarran Motel Hotel. Oh, uh, no. There was, on Bedford, there was the El Cafe, little mm -hmm. coffee shop, and then there was um, Planet Thai. That was a tiny little six-table restaurant, and that was it. My neighborhood was um, Calypso music and Puerto Rican guys sitting out front playing dominoes, and it was just barbecues on the sidewalk. Like, it was just the most fun, different place than I had ever been. This the Bedford stop on the L? Uh, I was Grand Stop. Grand Stop on the L. Yeah, okay. right on Bushwick between Metropolitan and wow. Grand. Wow. Yeah. Or Metropolitan and Grand. There's still a large Latino community there. Yeah. Yeah. Just, I grew up like that, so I, I, I totally can picture that neighborhood in, in mm -hmm. my mind. Yeah, and I got to, you know, there was a White Castle, and I only heard of it in a Beastie Boys song, and I was like, oh my God, I'm going to White Castle. Like, I was yeah, How so... many times did you go after the first time? Oh, uh, a lot. I was really? still in my 20s. Yeah. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Yeah. Murder burgers. Ugh. Ugh. 
No, now I no, 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 can't. At 40, you can't. No, no. no but back then, no give me a Crave no case. Ugh. A what? Crave case. You could buy 30 at a time. Are you kidding me? Yeah, in a little suitcase. No, you really? That? Yeah, no, crazy. no, no. I stopped I stopped eating fast food very young because I was just like, Bleh. I don't uh, know. Yeah. I started getting sick. Yeah. A Crave case. Crave case. Oh, my God, a Crave case. That's yeah, so... And, oh, God. So you have a, a big history, Susan, of making treasure out of trouble. Yeah, I do. You do. You do. Why don't you tell us a little bit about um, how your writing got you into into trouble and how it segued you into the career that you have now? Oh, <laughs> and my writing has always been my way of working through my life, like any sort of experiences, mostly the bad ones though. Those are the ones I want to process. And so when we found out that my mom was taking a lot of prescription drugs. Uh, that's what I did, but unfortunately, at the time, I had a blog, and so I was writing about it online, and I didn't think of it at the time. I was just broken and terrified, and I had three friends who read this stupid blog, but somehow one of my cousins found it and spread it to the family. And oh, so, dear. And then somebody eventually told my mother, and she didn't say anything to me for a while, and so... I just kept writing as things were happening in our lives. And then one day my sister called and said, well, Susan, they found it, they've all read it, and they're done with you. And in the South, done with you means dead to me. And I had effectively been estranged from my family via text message. Oh my God, you excommunicated from your own family. Yeah. And did your mom have like some kind of injury or something that, that could, like so many people, like people get prescribed things because they hurt their back? Or no, she had started, she had migraine headaches when she was in her 20s. Oh, those are terrible. Yeah, absolutely. And she would get really sick from them, like to the point that she was vomiting. Yes, pain. yes. Yeah, if and you've never had a migraine, it's, your, your head is exploding and so is your stomach at the same time. Yeah. It was and all you and all you can do is lie in the dark and pray for the pain to stop. Exactly, and you can't even move. Yeah, she yeah. was just—it was terrible for her, and so because of that, she started taking things like Vicodin and other pain pills. They prescribed that for migraines. Yeah, well, she Those had stupid doctors. So many different, you know, <sighs> they were trying different things. She was going to a neurologist, trying to figure out what was going on with her, and as a result, she started using more and more pills. And it just progressed from there. Yeah. yeah, by the time we realized she was an addict, she had also, she'd had breast cancer in the interim. And so it had been probably 20 years at that point of her progressively being more dependent on drugs. And then when she got cancer, she was very depressed, which she had been most of my life. And um, so then it just kind of sent her over the edge. And when we discovered her addiction, we were looking at the pill bottles and the when she had gotten them filled and how many had been in the bottles and it seemed like she was taking about 90 to 120 pills a week. Oh my God. Of things like that Vicodin would, and Xanax. That would and kill Indian. a regular person. Yeah. It's like five times. That's how we knew. She had collapsed and went to the hospital, woke up complaining of a migraine and so they gave her some Tylenol 3 and then that didn't work. So then they gave her a Vicodin, and then they gave her a Percocet, and then a Percodin. And it was just like this series of so many drugs, and she was still awake asking for them. And as my sister was telling me the story about what had happened, I was like, well, Amy, have you ever taken one Vicodin? There's just no... How in the world did she go through all those drugs and still ask for more? 
obviously, obviously there's a problem here, and it's not something that just started. Apparently she had been doing. It's, so. an on, it's an ongoing tragedy in America today. Yeah, when I found out that my family had read the blog, I uh, just wrote another blog post because I'm kind of an ass and was broken. I've tried to forgive myself for this, but I really I could have handled it better. But um, I wrote a blog post that was like, well, seems that the family's ha- found the blog, so hello, family, and wrote a post about an old uncle who had also been estranged and gotten the done with treatment. And it was just like, here's to you, Uncle Elsie. Now I'm with you. And my mom commented on the blog. So it was the first time she had spoken to me about it. And she basically refuted everything I had said, called me a liar online. And then we didn't speak for several years. Was that the end of the blog? That was the end of me writing about her for sure. I took down all the posts about her. And it stunted me with writing for a long time because every time I'd put something down on paper, I would get her in my head. Of course. That's your mom. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, no matter what, that's still your mom. And you have that visceral, umbilical tie there that that goes beyond any relationship that you have with anybody else. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, I was so sad that I had hurt her, but I was also so angry and so confused, I couldn't believe that my mother, you know, I had held this woman on a pedestal for so long, and I was really disappointed and angry that she had become an addict. Writing about it had freed me in a way, because I had gotten it out, and then it was just on the table. I wish I had done it in person, but it is what it is. Yeah, you, know? you, you, don't, you, you don't have hindsight. You don't have, um, yeah. uh, what, do you, what do you call that, uh, Monday morning quarterback? Right. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. And, 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 and those situations. You can only do the best you can and keep forging ahead mm-hmm. and, hope it, and hope it all turns out okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, unfortunately it didn't. It, it didn't. Know. That tragedy became one of your greatest triumphs on stage. Yeah. You made treasure out of that too. With the, at the Tank Theater's um, uh, solo festival last summer. Yeah, yeah, I did a show called Into the Belly of the Beast, and it was about the last three weeks of my mother's life. And it was, like, the arc of the story is based on my writing, because my mom gave me that first diary when I was 10. And then um, as I got older, she started reading it, so I stopped writing my diary, and I started keeping notebooks at school so that I could keep them in my locker hidden from her until I decided I'd bring one home, and, of course, she found it. And that turned into a huge scene where she was reading my writing, and I was a teenager, and I was writing about some boy, and I was mad at him, and it called him this, like, motherfucking cocksucking son of a bitch. <laughs> Which I'm sure he was. And he was. And my mom read it and just went crazy because we were Southern and Baptist and you don't speak like that and what kind of daughter am I raising here? And she took all of my writing that she could find and made me go in the front yard and burn it all. Oh, my God. So that was a hugely dramatic scene. And so then I quit writing until I moved to New York. And that was a good 10 years in between before I felt safe to write again. And so... When I got here, it was, you know, journals and stuff again until the Internet, and that's when I started the blog. So what get, got you started with storytelling, with, with Tell It? How did your you trajectory take off from there? Um, after doing that first show with Victoria where I told this hugely personal story about giving a baby up for adoption that I had barely told most of my friends, but I felt like if I'm going to 
get on stage and tell a story, well then by God, I'm telling a story. And doing that was so freeing and validating and people came up to me afterwards that were so kind and sweet telling me how much my story had moved them and sharing their own stories about you know whether they were adopted or knew somebody and it became this warm comfortable safe space and so from then on I was like I want in I want to be at every show I want to help produce this show and eventually it was just me and Victoria running the show and we did it for five years and we provided a safe space for other people to come in and tell their stories. And really in the community, we were known as the kind, gentle, Aww. loving kind of space. There's no, you know, no competitiveness, no scores, yeah. no judgment. Yeah. It was yeah. just come but and tell your story. That story about you giving up that baby for adoption ended up being on The Moth, right? Yeah. The, Mo the Moth Radio Hour, on I think? Or the, the Moth Radio Hour and the podcast. podcast yeah. yeah. Yeah, it was on both of them. It was That was my first story I told at The Moth. It became my goal after I started with Tell It and did a couple of shows. I set a goal that I was just going to put my name in the hat. I never thought I'd get chosen, but I thought, all right, I'm going to get up enough nerve, and I'm just going to put my name in the hat, and that's you know going to be as huge as buying stamps in Italy. Did you win? I did not win. Uh, I was on the same show. It was the first time Tara Clancy ever did a moth. Oh. We were both on the same Bill, or not Bill, but you know. Yeah, the same. You were in the same slam. In the same slam, and she won that one. That was probably like about 2012. Uh, yeah, that's about yeah, right. Yeah, that sounds about right, 2012. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah. And then from there, you, um, you've just been telling stories like crazy and, and hosting Tell It, which was on hiatus and is coming back. And after you did the solo show at the, at the Tank, mm -hmm. you ended up working for them. Yeah. I'm now now, you, now the, you're a producer and a curator for the Tank Theater. Right. I've been doing uh, the storytelling curating for them for over a year now and have produced three or four festivals now. I did the the solo week yeah. that the I was in the first time. solo week that we were time. in together. Right. Yeah. Then I produced it myself yeah. this yes. past year. And then you also did the Dead Parents Club, mm -hmm. and you did Pride Fest. Yeah, Proud as Fuck. Proud as Fuck. Yeah. Yeah, P-A-F. Yeah. I love that. That's such a great name. Thank you. It, it, it takes like that, that corny, I hate when people do AF after something. Yeah. And it's just like, no. But when you say Pride as Fuck, then I'm like, all right, yeah, I, I can get behind right. that. I yeah. can totally get behind that. So I heard a little birdie told me that you have a story for us. Oh, I do. I thought I would share something about growing up in the South. All right, well... And, um, well, like I said, you know, I grew up in this town called Fitzgerald, Georgia. It's like 9,000 people. And I hadn't been born there. My mom had moved us there after my parents' divorce. And so I was six when we got there. And, like, the first day, she takes me over to meet some of her friends. And while we're just sitting around the dinner table, one of the kids is telling a story about these N-words and I was in shock, and I look to his parents thinking somebody's going to smack him or something, and they just continued the conversation. Like, he had just said puppies or, you know. And so then I look at my mother to see what she's, how she's reacting to it, and she just gives me this little shrug like, well, this is where we are now. This is how people are. And from that moment, I thought, oh. I'm not like these people, and I'm going to make sure that everybody in this town knows I am not like this. And so my first day of school in Fitzgerald, it was first grade. I had gone um, out to recess, and there was a little group of three or four black kids playing in the corner of the 
yard. And so I marched straight up to them and thought, okay, how am I going to approach them? And came up with the best idea that I thought would be a great opener. And I said, you know, I always wish that I was black because I want to be a really good dancer like you. And, you know, now I know how racist and terrible that is. But luckily, they didn't know either, apparently, because by the end of recess, I had braids in my hair, I'd learned a couple new dance steps, and had established myself as the white kid in Fitzgerald who would talk to the black kids, because it was that crazy and that separate. And so in high school, I had a group of friends, and one of them, who was my very close friend, was this black guy named Walt Graham. And we went to parties every weekend, and we'd always poke fun at the rednecks around us because we would flirt and we would hold hands and we would just be real cute and cuddly because I wanted to get a rise out of all these racists, you know, and Walt was right there with me. And one of our friends uh, had a radio show and it was a weekend call-in program. She was a high school kid and had gotten a gig and would go in with her casinos and the kids would call in and request songs and one night I was listening and her voice comes across the air and it's and this song goes out to Susan Kent from Walt Graham and it was Bobby Brown's Every Little Step and when I got we get to the line no matter what your friends try to tell you we were made to fall in love I had a heart attack and I call the radio station and Jen answers and she's like I know I know and you know what else he's planning to ask you to prom. And my reaction was, well, which prom? Because there were two, of course, in Fitzgerald, Georgia, the white prom and the black prom. And naturally, he was gonna take me to the black prom because the white prom was held at the Elks Lodge. No blacks, no Jews. So it was like this crazy scenario and I just started panicking because as much as I wanted to set myself apart from these racist rednecks, I was not quite ready to be the first interracial couple at the black prom in Fitzgerald, Georgia. So being 17 and not knowing how to handle things, I just started avoiding Walt. And we, if I found out he was going to a party, I didn't go. And at school at lunch, I would go to a different side of the cafeteria so I didn't have to talk to him. And about, I guess, uh, Two months later, it was the white prom, and I went with my white date, and I'm at the Elks Lodge, and I was at the doors. They had these big French doors at the entrance, and I look outside, and I see Walt walking up the drive towards the entrance. And then I see the white chaperones heading down the drive towards Walt, and they start speaking, and it's very calm, but you can tell that it's tense. And so I'm just watching with fear. And in my head, I'm trying to send him a message. Just go, just go. They're going to kill you. Because I really thought, like after he um, dedicated that song to me, because it's Fitzgerald, Georgia, and because of the culture of racism, because I had friends who were in the KKK, like this was real, I was terrified already that I was going to have crosses on the lawn because that was a real possibility. And so watching him stand there at the white prom at the Elks Lodge with these white chaperones, I was terrified for his life. But nothing seemed to happen. And at some point, he turns to gesture towards the entrance, and he catches eyes with me. 
and we stare at each other for what felt like an eternity. And it was this moment of realization that he knew I had been avoiding him. I knew that I was part of the impetus of him trying to come to this prom, but what he was doing was so much bigger because he deserved to be in that room with his classmates as much as anybody else did. And part of me wanted to go out and stand up for him, but again, I was 17 and I was terrified and I didn't know how to handle it. And so I just waited for him to eventually turn back to the chaperones. And as soon as he did, I just walked away. And we never talked about it again. Oh my God. Have you ever spoken to him again? I saw him about a month ago. For real? Yeah, after 30 years. You went home for a visit and I went, ran into him? I went home for a visit and reached out to him. Because I've been carrying this with me for 30 years. Oh my God. And have wanted to apologize. And we're friends on Facebook, as you are, with everybody you've ever met. And so I finally got up the nerve and just asked if he would meet with me. And I told him that I'd been telling this story around New York and that I have a bad... <laughs> I can't change names. I just... It comes out, so I was letting him know and asked him about it. And as we talked, he just he just acknowledged that everything had happened, but he didn't really want to get into the feelings mm. behind it, you know. And so, because I, I know his experience, he still lives there. He's right. been there for 30 years. Right. He's, his son has gone to the black prom in Fitzgerald, Georgia, because it's still happening in 2017, 2018, there so, will be a black yeah, prom yeah, and a white prom. Yeah. So there's a there's a, a still a division yeah. between you two that it's not going to... We're not going to be able to, not gonna be able to get there that. soon. Yeah. We are now friends, though. We I talked to him on the phone a week ago. Wow. Like, yeah. Susan Kent, you have an amazing talent for turning trouble into treasure. Thank you. Let us know where what your fabulousness will be doing oh, that month. Oh, September 9th, I'm in the Cinderblock Comedy Festival with Victoria Scroggins. We're doing Tell It Brooklyn. We're bringing it back for the You're first time in over oh a year. Oh, my God. Yeah. Super excited. We haven't been on stage together in a really long time, and Cinderblock is such a special festival. So will you? Yes, it is. I, I missed applying for it this year. I have to make sure I, I do it for 2018. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I get really cool. I get distracted doing, you know, I do this little radio show at Radio Free Brooklyn called Fish Out of Aqua. Oh, I've heard of it. And it's a weekly show. So sometimes, like, little deadlines like that, I'm like, oh, man. But, you know, I'm getting better at it, so hopefully, you know, I'll I'll, I'll be able to apply for that next year. Yeah. Maybe we'll be in it together. It'll be fantastic. That'll be fun. I love performing with you. I love performing with you. And you're going to be bringing Tell It back on a regular basis? One night only. Oh, one night only. Oh man, I'll have to make sure. Special for the festival. And that is September 9th. September 9th. Write that down. And where can people contact you if they want to know about other appearances? Uh, I am on Twitter at the Susan Kent, or you can find me on Facebook um, at the Tell It Brooklyn page. Oh, great. Yeah. And if you had one piece of advice or one encouraging thing or one beware of that you wanted to tell that young child sitting in their bedroom, in a small town where they're the only weird one and they want to be an artist and they want to be something more than what that town is telling them that they're allowed to be, what would you tell them? Hang tight. It's out there. It's out there and you're going to get there. 
You're going to get there. You're going to turn some trouble into treasure. Absolutely. Thank you, Susan. Thank, Thank you. you for being on Fish Out of Agua. Love it. Mwah. Mwah. Love you. Kiss on the air. Yay. And we're back with Fish Out of Agua. Oh, I have one correction. We said way back in the interview that there were no Walmarts in New York, and that's te- technically not true. What we should have said is there are no Walmarts in New York City as of this airing. And well, enough about corrections. Um, I want to get to another song that Susan picked. And when you hear the name of it, you might think that she could have written it herself. Broken. 
<laughs> Susan Kent, those critters are for you. <laughs> Sometimes I get a little wackadoo. Well, um, that song was um, a song that actually I said before that Susan could have written it herself. And it was The House That Built Me by Longview, Texas's own Miranda Lambert from her 2009 Revolution album. And guess what, kids? We've gotten to this point where... That's our show. You have been listening to Fish Out of Agua on Radio Free Brooklyn. And um, if if you liked what you heard today here on this show or on any one of the dozens of fine programming that Radio Free Brooklyn offers. There is an easy way for you to support living artists. Support living artists. Sponsor us. Sponsor this show or any show on Radio Free Brooklyn. It's easy. Just go to the RadioFreeBrooklyn.com homepage and look for the donate button. You can even do it on my homepage. It's RadioFreeBrooklyn.com slash FishOutOfAgua. And there's a little tab on there where you can sponsor the show. And if you would do that, we would so appreciate it. Because, hey, you know, we do this. We put this out every week, every day, every month, every year. And you never know if anything is ever going to, quote unquote, come of it. But that's not the reason why you do it. You do it because you have to. And, you know, like, I won't, I just won't shut up, you know. (laughs) But, you know, supporting living artists, that's a good thing. I also want to thank everyone who helped vote for Radio Free Brooklyn to go to South by Southwest next March. We don't know the results yet, but I just wanted to give a shout out to that and also shouting out that, yes, there are a couple of weeks of summer left. So if you want me to play one of your favorite summer songs on the air in the next couple episodes, you have a chance. You can contact us at fishoutofagua uh, forward slash radiofreebrooklyn.org. Fishoutofagua forward slash at RadioFreeBrooklyn.org. So we're going to close this episode with this last of Susan's picks. You know, it's funny. I like. I love Susan's trajectory. Not only does that woman make treasure out of trouble, she's also like pretty in punk. Like not like like not like pretty in pink. Like like uh, that movie. No, but she's pretty in punk, and that to me describes her perfectly well. And this song is not quite from the South, like the South, Deep South, but it is from Southern California. It's from The Descendants with Hateful Notebook. And a couple of extra sound effects thrown in because, hey, that's just how we roll. I like the sound effects. So yeah, this song is called Hateful Notebook. It's by The Descendants from their 1996 album, Everything Sucks, which is kind of how we all feel sometimes, isn't it? Yeah, everything sucks, but then everything's great. You know what I always say. It's never going to be as good as it was, and it's never going to be as good as it's going to be. Stay tuned for Brooklyn Bandstand next, kids, and we'll see you next week. Woohoo!
Okay.